Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, Cynical listeners. I've got a couple of quick announcements before we get started. First, I'll be hosting a live Cynica taping in Houston, Texas on November 9th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Tiffany store inside the Galleria Mall, 5015 Westheimer Road in Houston, My special guest will be astronaut and International Space Station Commander Leroy Chow. Uh, This will be free to attend, so please tell your friends in Houston we'll be talking about China's space program, among other things. That event, again, will be November 9. Uh, So look for the announcement in the SupChina newsletter. Second, we are pleased to announce the winner of our drawing for a dinner with Jeremy and me. That winner is Ms. Julia Rauch of Munich, Germany. She lived in China for a number of years, beginning in 2011, and has been listening to our show, she says, ever since. Julia, you sound like a terrific person, and we really look forward to treating you to dinner when we're in Central Europe this coming spring. There's got to be at least one decent Sichuan restaurant in Prague. So uh, congratulations, I guess. And now on with the show. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and at the soon-to-be-redesigned website, SupChina.com. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from my home studio in beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina. Please greet the people, won't you? Hello, people, and I'm really delighted to be with you in this uh, new era of socialism with uh, Chinese characteristics. <laughs> No no lengthy preambles today. Uh, There's just too much that we need to discuss. Uh, The 19th Party Congress, of course, ended in Beijing last week, or this week, you know, at the time that we're recording, and it produced no shortage of grist for the eager mills of Peking punditry. Uh, So we are thrilled to have with us two of the smartest analysts of elite politics that I know, uh, both old friends of Seneca, joining us on the show today. First up is Bill Bishop, who is known around my house as Uncle Bill, or Kieran and Ariel's dad. Uh, Bill, of course, writes the indispensable cynicism, cynicism newsletter, uh, which is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few hours a day. Ten minutes. Uh, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. It's, it's great to be back. And yeah. actually, I call it cynicism. I, I actually intentionally made it rhyme with cynicism when I started the newsletter. Because you can never be too cynical when it comes to looking at Chinese, China and Chinese politics. Here, here, Bill. Well, you can be, actually. But. Joining us from Beijing today, we also have the euphoniously named Jude Blanchette, who works for the conference board, but is currently writing a book on the conservative critics of reform in the post-Mao period. Although he's just been telling us that he's suffering from... Uh, I don't know if it's writer's block, but uh, we still don't know when his book is going to get published, and we hope it's soon. Jude has been a guest on our program on two previous occasions, once to talk about neo-Maoism and once about Chinese nationalism. Welcome back to Seneca, OU of the honeyed name. 
<laughs> Thank you very much, Jeremy Kaiser. It's great to be here, and it's really uh, an honor to share this uh, the program with Bill. Although I have to admit, this makes me uh, pretty nervous. Well, he makes us all nervous. Anyway, uh, Bill, let's let's start with a big God. picture question to you. So, what did she manage to get from this party congress? Did Xi Jinping completely run the table, as some people have suggested? Uh, I think he got the communist holy grail. You know, the the focus, a lot of the focus has been on, or before going into the party congress, the focus was on personnel and makeup of the standing committee. I think he actually got something much bigger, which was getting his new theory, the Xi Jinping thought um, effectively, not just put in the constitution, but put in as one of the guide to actions and put in after the end of his first term. So several layers of unprecedentedness in the way he got that written in. And that has, you know, what is it really? Is it really a theory? That's actually kind of beside the point. The point is, is she sits atop the party. And now, basically, if you go against she, you're going against the party. And so long and as long as she is alive, it sure looks like to me that he will always be the most influential person in Chinese politics, whether or not he has an official title, or whether or not he's the chairman of the Bridge Association, like Deng Xiaoping was, or the chairman of the Go Association. So <laughs> from my perspective, at the top so, level... So we might be back to using the uh, phrase paramount leader like we used to about Deng Xiaoping. Well, Deng Xiaoping actually was known as like, I think it was, forget my Latin pronunciation, but primus inter pares, right? First among equals. Um, and I think she is very much just primus yeah. or primus, however you pronounce it. And so so from that perspective, I think she absolutely ran the table. No when, paras. No paras, exactly. No inter. I'm just above. But when you, and also I think when you look at the makeup of the standing committee in the Politburo, certainly you could say, oh, look, there were some compromises because there's Han Zheng, who's maybe a Jiang guy, and there's Hu Chunhua, who's like, like the Communist Youth League. Um, the reality is, though, they're there because no, there are there is no clear successor on the standing committee. They're they're effectively political dead enders, and it gives Xi time to basically, you know, he's running the standing committee anyway. It looks like, and it gives him time to sort of push other people up to the bureaucracy. When you go down to the Politburo level, it's much clearer that he has very much been able to put some of his key and closest supporters in into the Politburo and into positions, or will be announced into positions running big cities or other big things around the country if the table is about the standing committee, you know, he did pretty well. He still won. If you're talking about the much broader sort of control of the party and sort of laying the groundwork for a future, continuing a future dominance, he absolutely ran the table. Jude, what ultimately are the most significant outcomes from the Congress? Uh, there's usually a lot of focus on who ends up on the Politburo standing committee. But as Bill has mentioned, uh, that probably isn't the most important thing this time around. What, what would you say our takeaways should be? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think this is one of the one of the the surprises coming out of it for for me was I think that the takeaways are are different on the back end of this than I thought they were going in. I think you're just saying I and many other people were really focused on the composition of the standing committee, not not realizing that Xi Jinping was about to announce. Um, I think a really symbolic and structural shift in in China's relations, you know, domestically between the party and and the country, but also, you know, how China is going to interact with the world. So I think when I look back at this week and think, um, what's different now? Um, clearly, as, as Bill was just saying, I think Xi's dominance over the system is is striking and didn't happen in the way I thought it might have in terms of the standing committee composition, but certainly symbolically and. Structurally, Xi Jinping is just um, unchallenged now within the, the party and military apparatus. But I think really looking at how China is, is articulating its position in the world, um, how China is articulating its position in, within Chinese history now in this, in this new era, 
Um, I think we're really we're really at a hinge moment here in in China's um, modern conception of itself, and one that I think a week out, I, I don't have a good sense of what this this firmly means, but. Um, this wasn't just a, an, another party congress. This is really, um, I think, on par with you know the third plenum in 19, 1978 in terms of um, indicating a, a shift in, in China's um, position in the world. Hmm. Uh, Bill, do you think there's any evidence that suggests that she is in any way constrained, either by factional rivals? I mean, we I, I guess probably not. Uh, by by any of the rules, written or, or unwritten, or or really by anything else, or does he now? have essentially autarkic powers. I mean, me and Jeremy will always have Paris, but uh, he's no longer Primus Inter Paris. He's just... <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And I think that that's one of the key questions that at this point is is not, I think, answerable, but ultimately has a very uh, crucial or very, very important impact on China's future. Because, you know, certainly maybe he'll be some wonderful benevolent dictator, but if he's not, then and he's not constrained, then things can get really ugly. So uh, I wish we knew I would imagine that there are some constraints, but there are a lot fewer than I think there were even before the 19th Party Congress. Hmm. Hmm. Kaiser, can I jump in on that quickly? Absolutely. Please, please do, Jude. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I don't disagree at all with with what Bill said. And in fact, I think one of the striking things is, you know, when you look back over the past four decades or so at, at what was driving the pendulum swings between openness and, and closing in China. One of the things you could always typically identify were the forces within the system that were going to be there to sort of nudge the pendulum in the other direction. So, so in this case, in terms of, of who is there or what, what sections or, or groups or factions within the party you know, military apparatus to begin nudging this back in a different direction, it's just impossible right now, I think, to identify who those are. And, and that seems to me to be a, a new phenomenon. The fact that we just don't know who would be the constraining forces, I think, is quite new and distinct. That's really what I was getting at with that question, yeah. Okay, Jill, Jill, Jill and Bood. Bill and Jude, a question for both of you. There's a, a phrase uh, that I've been hearing a lot, and I'm not quite sure who f- first said it, but uh, the idea is that Mao made China stand up, Deng made China rich, and now Xi has made China strong. Uh, does that sum things up, do you think? Yeah, Jeremy, I, I, that, that's, a, that's a really good Question. Um, I think at this point, this is both a, a mixture of reality and, and aspiration. It's certainly the case that, you know, I've been saying for, for a while now that China needs a new way to conceptualize rhetorically where it is and reform and opening didn't seem to, to capture that. So I think Xi Jinping in sort of announcing that, that China's in a, a new phase helps us get, gain some clarity. But I do think that if China is truly a, a strong country. I think this still needs to be shown. So right now, I think this is, again, a mixture of some some reality and, and some aspiration. That's right. We hear now a lot about this about this new era. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what you think the significance of his having declared this a new era to be. I mean, I understand that it is about divisions of PRC history. There's an implicit reference to, to Mao and, and, and to Deng. Is this the end then of, of the reform and opening period? But I also hear sort of analogies to the the system of, of emperors who named periods like Tang Minghuang, you know, who ruled in like the early 8th century. He had two reign periods uh, called Shengshi and, and, and Kaiyuan, right? And then they were meant to, to drive an idea, right? Each of them was supposed to sort of in, inaugurate a, a, a distinct period. What characteristics are, are emerging from this particular, you know, from Xi's period? Bill, why don't you take a crack at that? Uh, well, officially, I think we're only on uh, day three. But, 
the, the declaration of it, I mean, really is it's it's it is symbolic, but it's you know it, it's also more symbolic because it ties into that political the positioning sort of Mao, Deng, and Xi. So so it clearly you know now we're in the third era. I think is what the party wants us to believe, or she wants us to believe, right? We had the Mao era, the Deng era, and now we've we're in the Xi era. And in addition to getting sort of Xi thought written into the party constitution, the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, such a mouthful. You know, one of the things that's really important from the party perspective and how the party orients itself and how the party looks at addressing what it sees as these challenges across Chinese society, Chinese economy, was the change in this Marxist principle contradiction, which, again, the previous one was set in 1981 in the Deng era. And so changing that now is, again, part of the starting point of here we are in this new era. So the, the principle contradiction went from the ever-growing material and cultural needs of the people versus backward social production that was set in 1981, which really unleashed reform and opening and the focus on sort of no-holds-bar economic development. Now, in the Xi era, according to the Party Congress, the new contradiction is between unbalanced and inadequate development and the people's ever-growing needs for a better life. And so, yes, I mean, Kaiser, I know it, it sounds obvious. Yes, they have, to, they have to keep meeting people's expectations and they have to restructure the economy and they have to have greener, more sustainable growth. And, and it's true. It is pretty obvious. But the fact that it's set at this very, very high level inside the party is something that I think the way, given how the party works, is absolutely crucial for building the foundation along with the she thought and along with more discipline to actually really potentially making a lot more progress towards some of the reforms that were mooted, for example, at the third plenum in um, 2013. It's not just that it's banal or that it's it's just obvious. It's also that it's it's kind of old hat. I mean, how different really is this you know, from the four uns, uns that, you know, Wen Jiabao talked about back in 2007 yeah. when he talked about, you know, China's economy, that it was unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated and yeah. well, unsustainable. Right. I mean, it, it, it seems like a very similar formulation to me. It is. But that was in contradiction with the principal contradiction. This is now reset that so that, again, these guys are actually we can have a longer discussion, but Marxism does matter in China. And this is very much a Marxist part of the way they look at things. And so this is actually from the inside the party and the way they're going to go about analyzing and dealing with problems. This is absolutely crucial that they made this change in the principal contradiction. Well, let's I mean, while we're on the subject, let's talk about. Marxism and, and, and the extent to which it matters. We've seen that it's been basically a shell, a form. The actual content hasn't been all that significant before. I mean, would I be wrong to see it now as it's basically kind of a load-bearing wall? It's kind of, yeah, in need of shoring up, but should we uh, see it still as just kind of a, a tool uh, or maybe even like a, a shibboleth that, that sort of, you know, using that, that terminology is a pledge of, of loyalty, of you know, a sign of discipline, and, and that it's not going to get in the way of the more pragmatic pursuit of, of, of national goals? Or, or is there, you know, as you seem to suggest, actually something substantive to it, that there are distinctly Marxist ideas that are, you know, to be taken seriously and, and are taken seriously within the leadership? Or oh, if I may add to that question, is it rather than Marxist, maybe just Leninist ideas of how to control a party in a large country that still have appeal for China's communists? Yeah, I mean, that would be my take. I'll jump in first. There's absolutely, first of all, they're absolutely Leninist. Leninist is a, is a great description. Um, any ideology is a tool. Um, but when you look at Marxists, I mean, I think we have to really consider the fact that she actually believes in Marxism. 
And, you know, it's it's been very easy to sort of say, no, no, it's just it's just sort of they say these things because that's what they have to say. But they're really just closet, you know, liberal economic liberal econ- economists or they're, they're looking, you know, I actually think especially with she and the work he's been doing, you know, from party for party building, which really he oversaw in the 17th Party Congress before he became general secretary, uh, party building, party construction. Um, I think we really have to consider the fact that actually he thinks there's a lot of validity in Marxism. His top, you know, the top theoretician of the last three general secretaries, Wang Huning, is now in charge of ideology and party building. And maybe he's a neo-authoritarian. He certainly doesn't seem to believe, based on his writings, and Jude, you should talk about this because you, you wrote a great post recently about some of his writings. He certainly doesn't think that the Western capitalist model is a good model um, and is necessarily a, a, appropriate for China. So, and I think also, so we look at things yeah, like- he's also the the guy who you know who authored three represents right he's the one who brought the capitalists into the party in the first place right but but that doesn't mean they're not marxist because they're trying to co-opt the people who are who are powering the economy that doesn't fundamentally mean they're not marxist so i think there's a broader thing here which is a lot of westerners you know we we've we've imposed our wishes and our hopes on the chinese system when and yes it is not marx as marx would have marxism as marx would have seen it but you know they have they have theoreticians who are who are basically olympic level theoretical gym, gymnasts who've been working for decades about how to synthesize marxism and how to make it fit the 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 practical the the actual conditions inside china and you know you had that great quote jude in your blog post i think it was chen yun sun chen yuan who basically said you know we define what communism is and so we can dismiss that but i think i think it's a mistake and i think especially coming out of this party congress and the document you know the other piece is on the international so the 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 view of the world and the analysis of the uh, global situation and china's role in the world and opportunities to increase that role in the world that looks like a very marxist worldview about how you know this this is their sort of almost like a what is it deterministic sort of this is this is their time and these are the opportunities so i really am nervous about just dismissing this as it's all just bs they're just leninists and we should ignore the the ideology part i think i think actually especially what we know about xi that this is something that we need to take pretty seriously I don't know. I mean, I look at the fact that there are no SOE heads now in the Politburo or even in the Central Committee. I look at quite a number of of things that suggest to me that this is something totally unrecognizable as Marxism. I mean, as as Jude said in, in that post, we define what Marxism is, and they seem to have defined it as something that's wholly unrecognizable to anyone who is sort of an orthodox Marxist. Right, but but it's but it's not our system either. It's not it's it's not our system, and you know, no, it's certainly so the not SOE our system, heads aren't in the Central Committee, but but you know, Xiao Yaqing, who runs SASAC, is in the Central Committee. So you know, if, if if part of the what they're looking at with SOE reforms is to basically change the model in the way that this, the asset administration, the, the 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 body that oversees the central SOEs operates, then having him on the Central Committee makes a lot of sense. So I don't know. We just leave it out there. We're not going to resolve it. We've had this we've had this no. debate for months and. Let's let's move on from this debate. I'd like to get back to the mechanics, actually, of the, the 19th Party Congress, if we may. Jude, for a long time, many China watchers were talking about conventions uh, such as Qishang Baxia, which is about the retirement age of officials and was obviously most under discussion about whether Wang Qishan would retire or not. The discussion covered the likelihood that she would break with these conventions and what, what that would mean. Where did he break with convention and where didn't he? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, and that was obviously dominating the discussion beforehand. I th- the the premise of it being that the the number of conventions Xi Jinping breaks is a is a good indicator of the power he has over the system. So I think 
looking mo- most specifically at does Wang Qishan stay on past 69, which would seem to defy the the norm or the convention, uh, as you mentioned, of a, of a retirement age. And, and obviously, Wang Qishan retired. The, the real question, though, is why did he retire? Because the answer to that question tells us if there's any stickiness to the you know, to these retirement norms. So, you know, your overall question, this didn't appear to be the the norm-shattering party congress that many people thought it was. If you rewind a couple weeks ago, conversations I was having in Beijing, the range of speculation about what would happen at the Congress was pretty striking. You know, Xi Jinping was going to reinstitute the title chairman, which had been abolished uh, in in the party constitution in 1982. He was going to abolish the standing committee even, um, you know, that there was going to be a shrinking of the Politburo Standing Committee down to five, that Wang Qishan was going to stay on, that, that someone like Chun Minar, who didn't seem to have the typical experience to warrant being helicoptered up and, and being chosen as the successor, was going to be put on the Standing Committee. So n- none, of those, none of those happened. Um, now, I think the, the larger question, though, and this is what Bill you, you know, was talking about at the beginning – I don't think that means now that Xi Jinping is a normal leader. Um, and I think we've seen additional ways in which he's showed himself to be a, an extraordinary, um, extraordinary leader. What, one, one thing that was – well, a couple things that were broken though is we're now um, putatively five years out from what should be according to the you – know, according to past experience of, of uh, you know, Hu Jintao and, and Jiang Zemin – we're five years out from the 20th Party Congress when Xi Jinping should possibly be stepping down as general secretary and chairman of the CMC, um, and we don't have a clear indication of, of who his successor would be. So uh, it's difficult to say if that's the breaking of a norm, because if we're looking back at the 96-year history of the Communist Party, there's not really a good norm for leadership succession. It's usually pretty messy fair. And if we look more broadly at authoritarian systems and communist systems, um, leadership succession is, is the Achilles heel. So in many ways, we're, we've just reverted to the mean of these systems. But I think for, for folks watching China, and, and especially in 2017, given China's importance to the global economy, it, it is striking that there is now an open speculation about whether Xi Jinping is is going to pull of, of Vladimir Putin. The second thing, and I, I don't know if this is transgressing where we want to be right now in the conversation, but um, they did eliminate a, a straw poll, which had been used before in the Central Committee to who should be in the leadership. And that's happened in 2007. It happened in 2012. That's now gone. I would say that's, that's, that's definitely a denormalization or a uh, a breaking of one of the soft rules. So in general, it, it adhered more to norms than I think speculation would have had it a couple of weeks ago. But we still did see in a few crucial areas, namely how leadership, how the leadership pool is is chosen. And if you read the Xinhua article, which came out what two days ago or, or yesterday, walking us through the process for for selecting the the new leadership pool, it shows a, a pretty heavy hand for Xi Jinping, the the individual. And then, crucially, I think on the the successor, which is now uh, you know wide open speculation about who who that would be if there's going to be one. While we're on the subject of the straw poll, I seem to recall that Xinhua article mentioning that the reason it was abolished was because of a vote buying, which blamed on Ling Jihua and Zhou Yongkang um, and Sun Zhengcai. Is that is that uh, is my memory correct? And um, you know, does that tell us anything? Yeah, it's inferred, at least the article that I have um, in front of me right now, it, it's inferred who it is. 
Um, and it's also completely implausible that that that's why it happened. I just don't find it. Um, I don't find any credulity to to the fact that they abolished the straw poll because there was vote rigging by Sun Jun Tsai. Um, so I think it, it, it was more likely the case that again we're seeing uh, um, Xi Jinping wanting to have greater control uh, over what the what the leadership lineup looked like and and who a potential successor would be and. Um, you know, as with any leader, when you get, when you come into power, you find constraints really frustrating. This is why U.S. presidents go to executive signing statements right away because it's a pain in the butt and it's hard work to to go through Congress. So I, I think Xi Jinping is looking to maximize his his control uh, uh, over leadership and and a straw poll, even if it doesn't completely determine who the leadership is, just an annoyance. So why not do away with it? And one of the things we're seeing is blaming baleful influences within the party, especially. Especially, you know, the rotten apples who have already been singled out is a really great way to, to basically dump all problems on them. No one's going to question if you say Sun Jun Tsai wanted to redirect, you know, the trajectory of the earth into the sun. Um, <laughs> you can you can say whatever you want about him now. Hey, that seems to be what's going on. Uh. The thing about the Sun Jun Tsai case was fascinating. The charges that were laid out against him in the official release were actually worse than Boshi Lai. So, so there, there's, there's something big there that may be just about succession, but I actually think it's we're going to see another big tiger who a former standing committee member go down in the next six to 12 months. Um, on the norm issue, one of the challenges there is we're not actually sure what all the norms are. And the norms are like communism and Marxism tend to be flexible. The age retirement rule, I think, was changed by Jiang Zemin to keep a rival off the, off the standing committee. And so these were never really hard and fast rules, even in this situation where people say, well, she sort of mostly adhered to the norms. The fact is, if he did, Li Jianshu would not be number three in the hierarchy, um, and I think Li, uh, Li Yuanchao and Liu Qibao would have been on the polypier, on the standing committee, right? So, so they, they didn't respect seniority. They didn't respect some of the some of the um, you know things like the ranking for Li Jianshu. So it's it's a little bit selective. Not that you were saying this, Jude, but I know people saying, "Oh, see, he really was constrained. He stuck to the norms." You know, like I said earlier, I think the norms are far less important now because of what he did with the she thought. So, Bill, I've got a question for you. Um, many people have speculated, Jude mentioned, uh, you know, that Wang Qishan wasn't part of the new Central Committee. Uh, I mean, we don't know whether it was that he sort of voluntarily retired or whether he was sort of forced out. And uh, there's a lot of questions as to whether this has any anything to do whatsoever with Guo and Gui, you know, the fugitive billionaire who's sitting in his perch in the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York. Uh, and whether he had any success in discrediting Wang Qishan, driving that wedge between him and 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 Xi Jinping, uh, Bill, are we any wiser now? Do we know anything more? No, I mean Fu Zhonghua is on the Central Committee, um, and given the the, the Guo Shengkun, who was the Minister of Public Security, his his ascension to be Secretary of the uh, Politics and Legal Affairs Commission, uh, if Fu Zhonghua is, is becomes Minister of Public Security, that will actually be a sign probably that the Guo allegations were, were didn't have a huge effect, at least on him. Uh, Wang Tishan is one where we just don't know. I think, you know, Team Guo is taking credit. But uh, ultimately, I think one of the things will be whether or not he reappears in some other role. There's lots of speculation from vice president to some big role in this new National Supervision Commission. I'm skeptical because all of those are downgrade from a standing committee member. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, what will be more interesting in some ways, too, I think, though, is has 
see and has the party succeeded in institutionalizing uh, the discipline and corruption crackdowns. Um, and so with Jalaji, who's the new uh, secretary of the, of the Discipline Inspection Commission, will he be as effective as Wong so that it really wasn't about one person at Ashibat's institution? Or will we see some uh, weakening because there isn't such a strong and feared personality running the commission? Uh, Bill, and your very quick take on how significant it is that she didn't seem to have appointed or anointed a successor. I mean, is it a foregone conclusion that he's going, going to stay on for a third term or pull some sort of a Putin Medvedev move that, you know, like 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 Jude suggested? Uh, I would I would tend to agree with Jude. I mean, I think, you know, we, we had the Dong era. We had he, he had he ended up with three general secretaries. Right. First, um uh, Hu Yaobang and then Zhao Ziyang, right? Um, he sort right. of swapped them out, like, uh, and so, uh, you know, again, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this term there's a new general secretary, but maybe there's another position that's above that. As Jude said, we were all hearing these rumors that, you know, the the, sta- the system was going to be restructured. We, they might bring back the party chairmanship. The last person to hold that, I think, was Hua Guofeng for a brief period after Chairman Mao died. That obviously didn't happen. If it did happen or if it does happen, it means the general secretary is just sort of like, you know, they work for the chairman, so almost anybody can be it. Um, so I, I don't know. I think clearly the succession issue, again, I think is made fairly moot because as long as she is alive, he's going to be in charge right, in terms right, right. of overall policy setting and agenda. Not and he, Cloistered emperor. Or whatever yeah, you, yeah. yeah, whatever you want to call it. She is large and in charge. How about Premier Li Keqiang? He was not sidelined as many had thought he might uh, be. What does this mean? And will he still have economic policy as his main focus? And Jude, maybe you can take that question. Yeah, I I think I was thinking about this yesterday. Actually, what's what's striking to me is just how irrelevant Li Keqiang has seemed to this entire conversation over the past week. And I think more more broadly, you know, I talk with a fair amount of companies over here. No one is really interested in Li Keqiang and uh, what what position he may play, because especially now, and this is what Bill's been been speaking about, you know, especially now that Xi Jinping is. Um, is the party essentially sim- symbolically or otherwise? All eyes are now looking at Xi Jinping and, and trying to parse where in his speech, for example, or where, where we're going to see policy priorities. And now I think, especially with the elevation of Liu He to the Politburo, you know, Wang Yang on, on the Standing Committee, although it's likely he won't he won't directly have the the economy portfolio. Nonetheless, eyes are now beginning to drift to other people in in the system. So that that's pretty striking, and especially if we zoom out and look at the past. For decades or so, when you think about traditionally what the premier role has has uh, the role it's played in terms of management of the economy, Zhao Ziyang, Zhu Rongji, it, it's really I think quite startling that this role seems to be a lame duck already going into or just beginning the 19th Party Congress. We've already talked about a couple of people. You just mentioned Wang Yang. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Wang Huning. Uh, let's let's go ahead and, and talk about the actual uh, membership, the the lineup of, of the standing committee. Uh, one of the things that was notable about it was that we had the correct list a full four days ahead of the PBSC lineup announcement. The SM, SCMP got it, and then Chris Buckley had it, uh, maybe from the same source, we're not really sure, uh, also ahead of time. That That's not usual. I mean, I've this isn't my first rodeo either. I've, I've seen a bunch of these, and Everyone gets it wrong. Usually, there's always a few surprised people. Not not this time. What does this say, Bill? Um, in your sense, uh, what does this say about um, the sourcing that this SCMP got, or, or whether this was like deliberately telegraphed, or, or what's going on here? Well, I think so. The South Carolina South Carolina Morning Post is a big winner out of this because they they did break it uh, and they were correct and they were very confident about it. Um, 
And, you know, what's interesting, right, is, is that that Xinhua piece we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where they went through sort of how the how the Politburo was selected, I believe says on September 29th at the Politburo meeting, they, the Politburo had passed the proposed candidate list. And that didn't leak. And I think that says a lot about how Xi Jinping is controlling information. I, I will tell you that um, other people I, I know and talk to on a regular basis who usually have a much better sense ahead of time were, were really surprised at how they couldn't get that they couldn't get the leaks that they usually got in terms of about who was going to be in the standing committee. And so this, I think, is something we see across the board in the, you know, under Xi Jinping, which is a much tighter compartmentalization and control of information and much, uh, just a much smaller circle of knowledge about any big decisions. And a lot of stage management that goes into the public messaging, too. The, this, this tighter control around information, and as Jeremy said, also around the messaging and controlling the messaging, ties into the, the, the efforts over the last several years to control media, control, you know, take better control of all forms of media so that the party and the, uh, the ideology guys are able to set the, and the propaganda guys are setting the agenda. And so I think it's all part and parcel of a, of a much harsher approach towards information controls under Xi Jinping. Just to follow up on, on what Bill said, I think in, in conversations with folks here in Beijing, and especially people who, who watch this in much more detail and, and for a longer period of time than I do, the striking thing wasn't that South China Morning Post a few days before was able to get this correct, although I think that's notable and, and my hat's off to them. It's that even if even you know just before that a week or so before that when we're about 6 days away from seeing what the new leadership lineup is of the second largest economy folks really didn't have a good sense of who was going to be in the leadership and and that's quite different from mm-hmm. the 18th 17th and 16th party congress when when a couple months out there was a fairly good sense especially after like a beidaihe mm-hmm. of what the line, lineup is going to be so th- this was this was a far tighter control than i think any any previous congress Let's uh, get on. We promised we were going to talk about the final lineup of the Politburo Standing Committee. But before we talk about that, can we talk about some of the people who many had supposed were going to be named, but in the end were not? And perhaps you could just introduce them for listeners who may not be as obsessed with the Politburo uh, as we are. The first one I'd like to ask about is, of course, Chen Minar. What happened to him? Jeremy, yeah, that that's a good question, and I think that's actually right now that's the sixty four thousand dollar question is what happened to to Chun Min R and and the the range of possibilities right now I think are pretty striking. Um, you know, he was he was one of the putative you know successors, and and again, if we think back a couple weeks ago or maybe a little bit longer than that in terms of. Uh, what the range of possibilities coming into the Congress was. Um, my sense is there was a, a, a belief that Chun Minar was, um, you know, better than 50-50 was going to make it onto the standing committee because we thought Xi Jinping just had, uh, was going to able to ram through a successor. So one of the things I would say is we, we might be seeing an evolution of the, of the uh, succession process here where, um, you know, you, you leave people on the Politburo for a little bit longer. I, I should note that although unlikely, um, it, it's not the case that the standing committee is necessarily fixed for the next five years. Um, so there is always the possibility of adjusting the standing committee. It can happen at any plenary session when you have the full central committee there to vote to vote on it. Um, so it could be the case that Chun, Chun Minar does get on the standing committee. I think this is Probably unlikely, but nonetheless, we're at the point now where we need to keep our range of possibilities wide open. But without anyone else around him in terms of young enough and with, uh, with, with clear enough loyalty to, to Xi Jinping, he still does seem to be the, you know, the front runner uh, for successor. 
How about Hu Chunhua? Is that well? He's still on the. Um, he's only on the Politburo, right? And he's he's young though. He's fifty four. That's right. So the so the question is, you know, and we don't know yet all the jobs these people are getting. So the question I think is also what what kind of job does he get? And if he gets something like vice president, like sort of replacing the Yuan Chao, then he's probably kind of a, a dead ender. If he gets a more meaningful portfolio. It's still possible, you know. He he was, you know, he is Hu Jintao. That everyone said he was sort of Hu Jintao's guy. He's the Communist Youth League representative. You know, the Communist Youth League has basically been shut out. I mean, its right. its influence has been it's been significantly significantly reduced, which ties back a bit, I think, to the um, the question about Li, Li Keqiang and sort of what his role is. And so, you know, Hu Chunhua would be surprising if he's got a much brighter career ahead of where he is already. I think the other people to, to really watch out, I mean, Chaminara is pretty interesting. You know, this guy, Li, Li Qiang, who's the Jiangsu Party secretary, uh, my money's on him replacing Hang Zheng in Shanghai, which would be very interesting because he's very close to Xi Jinping. If he's in Shanghai, you know, she would effectively have Shanghai. And then Guangdong, where, where Hu Chihua comes from, you know, could, will probably go to someone like Li Xi, who's on the Politburo, who's another uh, Xi guy. So this is another thing where we look at Xi's relative power and what's going on is it really depends on where the Politburo members, where they get assigned. And that stuff, I think, will start coming out over the next few days. But it, it usually... You can guess some of them, but it takes a while to sort through all of it. Okay. Let's talk about the five new men on the standing committee. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Wang Huning, uh, who, of course, is seen as a very important theorist. Uh, he's been elevated to the standing committee, but he stands out because he really has never run a province or a provincial-level municipality, unlike most of the people you know who are on the PBSE or who have been on in recent decades. Not all of them, but yeah. Uh, so Wang Huning, I've seen him already referred to several times as China's Kissinger, which makes me believe that there's a real paucity of thinkers and theorists in contemporary American politics, as if that's all we can come <laughs> up with. Who is he and what are his theoretical contributions? I mean, because, you know, he has, of course, been the man at the side of, of now three leaders. Yeah, it, we're, we're, we're fortunate in this case to have uh, Wang Huning, I guess, on the standing committee, because uh, usually what we do is have to parse the biographical details for standing committee members to find out, you know, what movies they like and what they eat for breakfast and what that tells us about the possibility for, for reform policy. But <laughs> in this case, we've got someone who has a, you know, an, a really a, quite a long paper trail right. That allows us to at least suss out suss out what he used to believe. Again, the, the operative question here is is does he still hold these ideas? But you know, just very quickly, you know, Wang Huning was already relatively famous in intellectual circles before he got called into up to Beijing in 1995 by by Jiang Zemin. He was a just a really promising and quite established academic at, at, at Fudan University in in comparative politics, and then as the as the head dean of their law school. Um, who just to really uh, give a, a truncated description of this was quite important in the in the mid to late eighties in in defining a new um, ideological uh, construct called neo authoritarianism, which uh, was looking to consolidate power in in Beijing for the purpose of uh, better implementation of policy. The fact that throughout the reform and opening uh, period you'd see the diminution of power to the to the local level. Um, which made it much more difficult than for Beijing to uh, push through the much-needed reform. So if anything, at the time, neo-authoritarianism was thought to be a sort of a, a pro-reform ideology. There's rumors that Zhao Ziyang and, and Deng Xiaoping both gave assent to it because it was saying, give power to a, a, you know, an enlightened despot and, and they will then ram through the reforms you need over the you know, much maligned and shadowy vest, vested interests. 
Well, I don't think it was just rumor. I think this is simply simply true. In the 1980s, the neo-authoritarian uh, backers, a lot of them, like Wang Ruoshui and Wang Ruorong, and all those those uh, thinkers from the 80s, were very much behind this idea. I mean, they were looking to Singapore as a model. It was very closely tied to the promotion of technocrats, too, of, of technocracy in, in general as a, a sort of approach to governing. So, yeah, uh, I think... Yeah, sorry, I, ju- I just meant I just meant a, um, a rumor insofar as that Zhang Z- uh, Zhao Ziyang actually made a comment of, yes, I, this, this, is, this, is my, this is my bag, I like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, yeah, you're right. Um, and, and, you know, so I think w- one of the things that, that I just trying to, to suss out sort of what, what, is, what is, you know, Wang Huning's still operative governing philosophy, it does seem when you, when you look at a lot of the, the central policies over the past five years or so, it does seem to fit very much with this, the first part of neo-authoritarianism, which is namely pulling power back, back to Beijing. I mean, you could, I sort of think of this as another idea of reversing capital outflows, but this time capital meaning Beijing. Political you know, that, capital. That there was a, a, an attempt to sort of draw power back, back to the center. And, and it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, a few conversations I've had over the past few days with folks about Wang Huning is they seem to think that this therefore means that the second part of neo-authoritarianism is also operative, namely that with this newfound power, uh, Xi Jinping and, and the new leadership coterie are, are going to drive reform. That, that one very much remains to be seen, and I give that a, a, a possibility of about not 3%. But nonetheless, um, this is a, a rare case where we really do have a good sense of what a standing committee member thinks about policy. So on Wang Huning, I think, you know, his role, he's in charge of party work. He's the, the head of the party school. He's in charge of really ideology and propaganda. Um, and, you know, when you look at his, he's also, though, has a very key role, um, which goes back to sort of power and how power works in the, in the role of the other members of the standing committee. He's the first secretary of the central secretariat. And that body is basically loaded with Xi supporters. And that's a very powerful uh, policy-making sort of policy flow body. So he's he's quite a powerful member. His view, and this a little bit, I think, goes back to the discussion debate we we're having about is it Marxism? What is it? Is I think that I think he does have a Marxist view of the world. He's also obviously very much a nationalist, and and this whole you know China dream, great rejuvenation, you know, great great new rejuvenation was was has been around for a century. But this is all I think this this our vision that she's been articulating about the rejuvenation and the China dream and how she's been articulating it. You really see I think the the fingerprints of Wang Huning behind that, and so. Is it this neo-authoritarianism? Is it this nationalist? Does it have Marxist elements? It's, it is some sort of thing that isn't, certainly isn't Western liberalism, right? And then, and so, and Wahuning is clearly at the core of that. So he's very much, and, and unfortunately he's, I think he's become, increasingly become a cipher because by several reports he doesn't like to talk to any foreigners, and, but he's clearly a very, very important guy. Li Jianshu, I think, is, you know, you sort of, I, I refer to him as Xi's consigliere. You know, he's, He's done a lot of work with Xi. He's got experience in the grassroots. He's has experience. You know, he was he was I think he was the, the head of Guizhou, yeah. head of the yeah, and then he was the like head of the the office of the National Security Commission, I think, or I forget exactly his yeah, exact he's, title. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got um, security as portfolio now, right? Well, no, it looks like the, I think the odds are he's going to actually be head of the National People's Congress. Uh, he'll be NPC. Okay, all right. Yeah. What, what about Han Han Zheng? Jude, why don't you tell us a little bit about Han Zheng? Yeah, so Han Zheng is someone that at least the sort of the, the foreign business community knows really well. Yeah. Um, native Shanghaier, 
was was the mayor and then party secretary. And I think I think crucially that Han Zhang has a, a staying power, which I think is 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 pretty notable, having survived a, a pretty significant corruption campaign of, of his boss in the mid 2000s, and then being moved to party secretary after, after Xi Jinping. So this is one where just to put on my day job hat. Um, there, there's a lot of speculation that this is going to mean a much more robust economic reform package because Han Zheng, as someone from Shanghai, which is an incredibly business-relevant community, as someone who's overseen the creation of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, that, that this is one of those solid indicators that, that uh, re- reform, reform is not dead, you know, in addition to, to, to Wang Yang being on the standing committee as well. Well, let's talk about Wang Yang. Yeah. Um, so Wang Yang, we've mentioned already, he ran Guangdong and before that Chongqing. Uh, and when Bo Xilai was still party boss of Chongqing before his fall in 2012, the two were often contrasted in the so-called cake debate, uh, which was sometimes called the Chongqing model versus the Guangdong model. And in the cake debate, Bo's position was statist, advocating for an equitable distribution of the wealth generated by the country's economic boon, uh, dividing the cake among the deserving and the needy. Um, whereas Wang promoted more laissez-faire economic policies intended to stimulate economic growth, uh, making an even bigger cake. Uh, Does this analysis make any sense at all, uh, looking at it from 2017? And is Wang Yang actually the reformer he's often made out to be? That's the big question, right? Bill, do you want to take a shot at that? (laughs) So is Wang Yang a reformer? I mean, and, and, you know, are Wang Yang and Han Zheng together, sort of, do they constitute a hopeful case? What's what's reformer, right? A lot of it is definitional, definitional. I think... No, we're talking about economic reforms. We're talking about... Yeah, I think think she's an economic reformer. Right. I think actually she, I think there, there will be economic reforms. They will be economic reforms that are, you know, again, they're all in service of strengthening party control and in, in service of this idea of national rejuvenation and strengthening the military. You know, again, though, it comes back to what are those reforms and are they the reforms that Westerners thought they were going to be? Or are they the reforms that these guys who really, I think, have some real questions about Western liberal capitalism, both in the wake of of the financial crisis in 2008, as well as what's been going on with Brexit and Trump, etc. You know, so so yes, the answer is yes. I think they're absolutely reformers. Are they reformers like like we want them to be as Americans or or Western liberal capitalists? Probably. Oh not. come on, no, no, nobody nobody is that stupid anymore. <laughs> okay, that leaves Zhao Ji. Okay, so let's talk about him. So so we can just get to the whole seven of them. So Zhao Ji, a quick potted uh, biography of him, or or you know what what do we make of him? So he ran the CCDI, uh, uh, or he's running CCDI. He used to be Org Bureau, right? He was, and that, that sort of makes sense. And there's some talk yeah. about merging the two, Org Bureau and CCDI. Is that is that in the cards? Yeah. So just 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 quickly on on Jellegi, who I think is a really interesting, really interesting and slightly enigmatic figure. Um, you know, was a was a wonderkind of of the party. Was uh, party secretary of of Qinghai very early on. I think in the in the early two thousands, and then went on to. He went to Shanxi, which is which is where his his folks are from, and then went on to the organization department, which he's been running since since 2012. And and one of the striking things for for me is, you know, the organization department has really taken a. I mean, it's always been incredibly powerful, but if you look at its ability to drive through campaigns over the past five years, it's really been quite striking that Jiaoji and the organization department have been absolutely central to Xi Jinping's revitalization of the party campaigns. And so, if we look at 
you know, many of the key features over the past few years have been about reviving a, a sense of mission and purpose in the party, but I think more crucially, um, reactivating the, the organizational tentacles of, of the party apparatus. And so this is reaching down into the very lowest levels of uh, or farthest reaches of China and making sure party committees are there and set up and active. Um, this is making sure party members are paying their dues, which for a long time was completely um, ignored. Exactly. This is making sure this is making sure that party members are, um, are participating in in you know the latest campaign on the two studies the one the one do and and also oh, this is probably isn't very interesting for most people the organization department has been really central in driving um, um, distance education basically making sure that no matter where you are in the party. Um, whether you're out in, in you know, remote Anhui province, um, you're now able to beam in and watch, you know, great party content and, and propaganda content that's created by, <laughs> uh, by this, by no, the center. And, 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 and this, you know, yeah. And apps. And so, yeah, absolutely. So if you, you know, party building now is really a digital affair and a, and a high tech yeah. affair, you know, you can, get, you can download WeChat apps. And so I, I think this is probably an, an underlooked, uh, underlooked at, underobserved phenomenon, but really, uh, Jalaji has done a, from the party's perspective, I think a, a really remarkable job in, in updating um, and, and uh, updating the the sort of what what it is to be a party member. He's been absolutely central in that reconceptualization, um, and, and and also I think sort of bringing bringing the party into the into the digital age. A lot of that was driven by the by the organization department. Hey, hey um, Bill and Jude, both of you, I want your quick take on this. How significant is it that all all seven men right now? Studied Wunke, you know they were they were you know they studied the most of them were economists or or uh, party historians or what have you and not the uh, scientific and technology you know see himself yeah he had some engineering training chemical engineering but he's really the only one is this sort of a final end to the reign of technocracy in China you know I don't think so I think we would have to go through the Central Committee and see sort of at that level what what the breakdown is you know this is an interesting. You know, maybe it's generational where earlier generation, it was all, you know, it was all about rebuilding after the Cultural Revolution. And so it was, you know, and, and it was all about um, engineering. Um, and then, you know, then sort of the next generation was, well, OK, now we're doing engineering. We need to be more thoughtful and, you know, economics, et cetera. Um, I'm not exactly sure. But in terms of, you know, I think if you look at the Central Committee, there are certainly some engineers. It seems like there's, you know, aerospace has gotten, you know. Um, and so it used to be 80 percent. Right. Well, because because when you're when your country is broken and you're poor, what's the point of studying things that aren't about engineering and building stuff? Right. And so, that's right. again, that's I think right. partially this may be generational because these guys somewhat. But it, but then again, you know, the age would suggest that they probably should have been engineers, too. So so I'm probably just making it up and making up an answer. Jude, do, you, do you see this as something <laughs> significant? No, actually, I, I don't think Bill's making up an answer. I, th- I think that's a really good explanation here. If you if you think about folks who were coming into university in in the late seventies, which is if you're in that sort of you know the Wang Huning age bracket, um, this was this was just now the beginning of reform and opening. I think the the necessity to have lots of you know engineers. Um, had, had diminished slightly. It was now a little bit more autonomy for what you wanted to study, which is why you saw folks going more into the humanities. So I think, I think, I, I think that generational thing is is certainly a part of this. I'd also say that that one of our tendencies is to sort of look at the makeup of a of a given body and work our way backwards and and assume that that was structured and manufactured to to be that way. So. 
Um, I, th- I think this is, as is usually the case, this is probably the pattern that we see in the end is usually just the result of a very messy bargaining process that where, where the individual sort of characteristics of their educational background uh, were incidental rather than rather than being you know fundamental to that. But but I think generational really explains a, a, a bunch of this. Right, right, right. So Bill's going to need to hop off. Let's get your recommendation really quickly before you jump off and we're going to continue without you. But do you have a recommendation for us real quick? So my recommendation is uh, a book that comes out in the U.S. this Tuesday called The Spy's Daughter. It's the third in a China spy trilogy by Adam Brooks, who is a former uh, foreign journalist in China who now lives in the D.C. area. And it's actually takes place in D.C., a lot of it. Um, It's actually quite uh, timely. And, you know, the first two books were the kind of books where I read them all. And each one, I think I didn't sleep. Um, And so very much looking forward to Adam's next book. It's called The Spy's Daughter, and it's released uh, this Tuesday, Halloween, uh, in the U.S. Sorry, really sorry I have to leave early. This is a great conversation, guys. Thank you. No problem. I mean, Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Great to talk to you, Bill. Cheers, Bill. Good to speak to you. So, um, actually, there was quite an interesting point I read today uh, on the website of the China Policy Institute uh, at uh, the University of no- Nottingham, um, uh, and it was uh, it's titled "Aerospace Experts in China's New Leadership," and it actually says, "What is the overarching trend of Xi Jinping's appointments? Put simply, the technocrats are back and have taken over key positions in China's economic development strategy," uh, and the article talk specifically about aerospace engineers. So um, maybe we shouldn't read too much into the uh, Politburo Standing Committee's lack of uh, science and technology uh, education. That's excellent. Let's make sure to put a link up to that piece. That'll be, that'll be really good reading. Yeah, that, I, I, I 50% agree with you, Jeremy. I guess the only thing I would, I would say is what we're really um, looking at, I think the reason we're paying particular atten- attention to the Politburo Standing Committee is um, we're seeing the political system get much more centralized here. And so the decisions that are really going to shape policy and, and the direction of policy, I think, are going to be coming from the tippity top of the top. And there, if you've got people who have humanities backgrounds, I think the feeling is you might get a slightly different policy array than if it was stocked with um, with technocrats. So no doubt, with you know, lower down in the system, you've got people with, with real hard science training. Training, but I think we're increasingly, and this is probably one of the, the dangers of where things are going, ju- just looking to the to the top of the mountain. Jude, what would you say generally about the, the current, uh, not just the standing committee, but we're talking about the Politburo and the Central Committee more broadly? Are there discernible factional leanings or alignments that, that you, you now, or is that is that whole heuristic just sort of gone now? Yeah, you know, this is something which I think gets rightfully a lot of a lot of flack from from some critics. Is it's really it's difficult to say that you know, for example, because folks overlapped uh, in appointments or at a a given geographical area, that they're somehow part of a faction. Um, I'd say that there's sort of two two types of factional analysis. One is that really sort of cheap factionalism where we just say, you know, folks overlap, therefore they're, they're buddies for life. But I would say that at the academic level, there's really some incredibly robust research going on about determining the extent of, of network strength and what it means for promotional ability. And, you know, Victor Schur out at UCSD is really driving a, a lot of this great research. So I think there's, there's really some robust evidence showing that network analysis is really helpful for at least intuiting and understanding the, the contours of power here in China and how they work. 
but on a you know in, in sort of defense for this this factional analysis, one of the things that that I think is well, I totally agree with with critics who say this is a really imperfect model. I guess I'm always left then with the question of okay, well, what do we use instead? Um, and this is one of the the really frustrating things about trying to do political analysis here, um, especially in, in my case from a from a non academic standpoint, is it's as things get as the black box gets blacker and as it becomes more difficult to divine what's going on here, we need to find heuristics that help us understand how things are operating and. You know, sorry to say that that sort of looking at overlap in in work experience is sort of better than than other things we've got. So while I you know absolutely welcome the critique of it, I also would would love to hear what are some better ways of trying to make sense of Chinese politics. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether this network analysis actually turns out that I mean it, it, whether it shows a good strong uh, correlation with with work overlap and and, and sort of geographical allegiance. Jude, can we talk about the inclusion for the first time of language about a more assertive and even central role for China in the world, that China will move towards center stage in the world? How do we interpret this? Yeah, I, I think this was inevitable. I think this was this was coming. And I think this is, you know, something that that should be welcomed of, of China really beginning to play a, a really forceful and openly acknowledged um, role in in shaping global affairs. My take on this, though, is this is as much driven about where the you know the quote unquote the West um, thinks it is at this moment. And I think the contrast between you know looking at China during the 19th Party Congress and this you know right on message discipline and talking about China playing a confident, secure, powerful role in world affairs, outlining visions through 2035 and 2050, and then you compare that to the U.S. where we're sort of embroiled in a scandal over over Trump's phone call. Um, I think a, a lot of a lot of this new messaging now is the party really being quite good at, at understanding and seeing strategic windows and, and jumping right into them. And so in this case, you look at the general feeling of malaise in the West, Brexit in the UK, certainly all the mess that we've got in the United States. It makes pushing the narrative of China moving center, you know, move toward the center stage of the world all the more plausible. I think for me, my hesitation and concern is I think now when we're talking about China moving into the center stage of the world, we're increasingly talking about the party as driving that. And and one of the th things about the party is just by by history and temperament, it's it's secretive, it's opaque. I think a real question moving forward is what does it look like for the party to take center stage in the world? Is it the sort of organization that is going to allow a more inclusive model of building a global institutions or not? And that, that really remains to be seen. If we just look at how it operates domestically here, I'm, I'm not entirely opti <laughs> optimistic about that. Right, right, right. Uh, in his speech, Xi Jinping also spoke specifically about the South China Sea and the island building that China has pursued there. Uh, this was also remarked upon in, in media reports. It was unusual and you know, pretty pretty assertive. Was this meant for domestic consumption or was it really meant to draw a clear line in the in the sand or in the, the sand shoals or whatever uh, to declare Beijing's position really clearly for neighbors in, in the region and, and really for the US? Uh, Kaiser, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I don't I don't really have a a take on that. Insightful answer on that one. <laughs> no, I guess I, I, it was. It, it's really anyone's guess, right? You don't know. Uh, don't know what audience yeah. that was intended for. I mean, they certainly know that the world is listening, and I, I can't imagine that it was written in there with no consideration at all to how that would land on on foreign ears. But yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. 
Another thing that made it into the party constitution was the Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, mm. is conventionally called Xi Jinping's signature project or something along those lines. What do you think is significant about the inclusion of, of the Belt and Road Initiative into the party constitution? Yeah, I think it's um, I think the fact that it's called one of Xi Jinping's um, central initiatives is is really important here because we're moving towards an era of where where policy is very personalized in China. Um, it's impossible to separate one belt one road from Xi Jinping. I should also add that supply side structural reform was was written into the constitution. Right, it's right. it's difficult to separate supply side structural reform from from Xi Jinping. So now what you have are two signature policies of Xi Jinping that are now sacred insofar as they're written into the constitution. It makes not going along with them incredibly difficult if you're someone in the political system here. So I think this is a significant development insofar as this is clearly indicating what the policy priorities are moving forward. This is clearly indicating that the entire party is behind it, so you better get on board as well. I think the concern that I have looking at it is just rather than moving in a direction where we're seeing policy in an in impersonalized, institutionalized manner, we're seeing this as re- reverting many ways much more to the sort of highly politicized campaign-like uh, style of, of policymaking. Um, which I think leads to, to many ways, greater un- uncertainty. What this is trying to do is shortcut that uncertainty by saying, no, don't worry, it's in, it's in the party charter. But this is a really unique way of, of making, making policy. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, if we think back about the past couple of years, you know, supply, One Belt, One Road is, is four years old, but you would think it was just created this year because Xi Jinping suddenly turned his, his attention to it this year and really put a push behind it. Um, and so that indicates when, when policy is this personalized, it really depends on the person paying significant attention to it. So I think one of the potential you know, weaknesses that's moving forward is um, alacrity to be pushing policy is really going to pe- depend on the, the leader putting uh, emphasis on it. That's right. That's right. So he didn't pack the Politburo with his personal picks, but he packed the uh, party constitution uh, with his messages exactly. and his, <laughs> his exactly. theories. Which is more effective, really. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think if you, you, and I don't have the list in front of me, but there's actually several of C's initiatives or slogans that were written into the constitution. So, you, you know, you could say that, yeah, as you said, there are many ways that Xi Jinping was written into the constitution. So uh, our, our last question before we let you go, Jude, um, and this is an opportunity for you to throw your peers and colleagues under the bus, whether they're analysts or pundits or, or media types. Uh, <laughs> what, are, what are people getting fundamentally wrong about this party Congress or about or about C more generally? And and I'm talking about just not conventional, conventional wisdom, but just what uh, some of the smarter people you're hearing, uh, what are they getting wrong? Where, where would you really sort of contest the, uh, the, the, the general take that's evolving here? Yeah, well, maybe maybe it's just easiest to say what I've gotten wrong because I feel like I'm probably you know smack dab in the in the conventional wisdom um, here. Okay, that's, you know, that's it, fair. It's, it's one of the things that I, I, you know, I think I just look back at where where I was thinking a couple of weeks ago and where I am today, and and all of a sudden, you know, after the 19th Party Congress, it's easy to to smack my my forehead and say, ah, it was so it was so obvious Wang Tishan was going to never make it on. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest things that that you know, we suffer from as a sort of non-academic analytical community is um, groupthink is pretty prevalent. And I, and I notice that I'm really um, 
it's really difficult for me to break out of that as well, where some of the things I begin to take on as likely, I'm only taking on as likely because I'm hearing them with increasing frequency from my circle of contacts, as opposed to having really a good way of you know validating those outside of that. So you, you just notice this, that I become more sure of things as they sort of work their way around the circle for the second time, um, rather than having any outside uh, validation. I think we're, we're all guilty of that. You know, I think hopefully one of the good takeaways out of this 19th Party Congress is, um, and and I think this was started, uh, Oliver Merton and Jessica Batke had a really good article on China File about, you know, why do we talk about politics in China as if we know what we're talking about. I think this is probably a good moment for us to have a reflection about how we think about politics, how we analyze politics, some of the, as you mentioned earlier, some of the heuristics that, that, that we're using. I, I think for me, the big one, though, that we can begin to do is to be spending more time immersed in sort of party discourse and to be listening to what the party talks about when the party thinks it's talking to itself. And there we're really lucky because we can read low-level party websites. We can get on the party school website in Anhui and see how the party is discussing policy. You know, every time the new policy comes out, they put something called a which is a description that the party gives out of how other party members should interpret this policy. So instead of looking at it how we think things should be going, I think we're, we're really lucky in the internet age that we can short circuit that and begin tapping right into what the party is telling itself. You know, go to any Xinhua bookstore and you can buy the manual for party building and SOEs. You can buy the, the manual for how you enter the party. So I think it's trying to put ourselves in the shoes of a, of a, of a party member is a really good way to have a better sense of where things are going. That is outstanding advice. And Jude, we're really so, so glad that you could you could join us. And uh, it's it's too bad that Bill couldn't be around for the last few minutes of the conversation. Uh, truly interesting times we live in. And and thanks to you and and again to Bill. Uh, before I let you go, let's let's make some recommendations for our listeners, shall we? Yeah, sure. Uh, but before we get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Don't forget to follow Cynica and SupChina at at SupChina News on Twitter and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SupChina News. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that you go for podcasts. It does mean a lot to us, and it really helps people discover the podcast. So on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you get the ball rolling here? Uh, yes, absolutely. Before I make a recommendation, I'd just like to uh, put a, give a message to listener Andrew uh, Cosentino. Uh, and my message is... Um, and he should know what I mean. <laughs> this is one of those guys who misses you swearing, right? <laughs> yeah. we, I get a lot of those. I get a lot of people who say, yeah, I miss Jeremy's rants. Well, we could bring them back. Um, my recommendation, however, is for a podcast uh, called Ear Hustle. Uh, Ear Hustle is a prison slang word for eavesdropping on someone. And the, uh, the podcast is recorded at San Quentin Correctional oh, wow. Facility. And there are a number of prisoners who uh, work at the prison has a media center and they work on the podcast. And it's a great way of really understanding, you know, beyond the kind of rape jokes and stuff that uh, people who haven't been in prison often think of first. Uh, it's a great way of understanding what, what, what it's actually like to live in a prison. And there's some really wonderful, articulate people at this prison. And uh, it gives you an idea of what this country is doing to a terribly large number of its own people. Oh, wow. I'm going to go download that right away. That sounds fantastic. Ear hustle, it's called, huh? Ear hustle, yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, Jude, what do you have for us? Uh, I've got a book that I, I just 
recently read a few weeks ago uh, by it's edited co-edited by Sebastian Heilman and Elizabeth Perry. It's called Mao's Invisible Hand, The Political Foundations of Adaptive Governance in China. Don't let the dry subtitle put you off. This is really a, a, an amazing book about how policymaking in China is affected by the roots of, of the party and its sort of experimental policy style, what they call guerrilla-style policymaking, which it adapted and evolved in the pre-PRC era, but which really carried over, which makes sense, and is still helping to shape and drive policy now. So it's a really good way, I think, of overcoming the idea that there was a, a, you know, a clean break for the party after Mao died or after the three represents or whatnot. It shows the continuities of policy making style. And I think moving forward, this is a probably a good way to help us intuit uh, how policy is formulated. I know that if Bill were here, he would give an, an enthusiastic second endorsement for that that book. Uh, yeah, Sebastian Heilman, that's his thing, right? Adaptive Leninism, right? Is, is, that, is he the guy who coined that? Uh, yeah, yeah. And he's also maybe a, a, a sub recommendation is, you know, he now heads up the Mercator Institute, Merricks in Germany. And I think pretty much everything they do is is amazing. So if folks haven't checked out Merricks, you know, get on their mailing list. They put out lots of amazing stuff. Um, and I, I think they've just got such a wonderful wonderful handle of the political economy. We recently recommended that that uh, ideology map that, that was uh, from Merrick's. Yeah, Very cool. it's awesome. Okay, so um, my recommendation is Putin's Revenge, a two-part series on PBS on uh, Frontline. Uh, the first episode aired a couple of days ago. It was just uh, an amazing, terrific exploration of the whole circumstances of, of Putin's rise and, and the events that shaped his, his worldview. I mean, I don't think anyone who's involved with China the way we are can watch this without seeing a lot of parallels. Uh, I'm also just starting uh, Masha Gessen's new book, The The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Very interesting to read for somebody like me who who started off doing Russian and Soviet studies in college and and then switched over to China studies. Uh, But yeah, both the the PBS frontline show Putin's Revenge and the new Masha Gessen book, very much enjoying. Anyway, Jude and Bill, who's no longer here with, but we've already said goodbye to Jude Blanchett. Thank you once again for taking the time. I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to having you on again soon. I I wish you luck with your book. Yeah, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure uh, to to join you guys. Yeah, finish it already, (laughs) Jude. Finish the book, Jude. Yeah, can't wait to read it. (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) Finish the book. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.